When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Study Smarter series is made possible in part by Osmosis, the personalized learning platform that manages med school for you. Get a free trial of Osmosis Prime by going to osmosis.org. Don't study it, osmos it. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 Comlex Level 1. Today I have a very mysterious and special guest, the Brozen Cephalon. It's uh, quite exciting to welcome you, bro. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me um, You know, on, on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for what you've done to uh, make uh, learning facts much easier for medical students. But before we get into kind of like some didactic stuff, we got to deal with a big question. So <laughs> I want to focus a little bit on who is the brosencephalon, but before just asking that, on Reddit, in the subreddit medical school, mm-hmm. question, how I feel after brosencephalon's identity is released by osmosis, and there's just a picture <laughs> of a, a baby that looks like somebody just like uh, startled. And uh, with like 42 comments, uh, (laughs) everything ranging from, I would have preferred his name to be shrouded in mystery and intrigue. And then it gets a little more like metaphysical. The real brosencephalon is all the friends we made along the way. (laughs) (laughs) How do we know that he is indeed the real brosencephalon though? Maybe I'm brosencephalon. So people are wondering, who are you? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I probably get asked that the most, uh, and especially so on the subreddit. They're an interesting bunch, and their support has really, really been motivating and fulfilling this whole way. But you know, Patrick, you know, you're asking me this at a good time. I'm actually in the process of, you know, getting brosencephalon.com deployed, and I want to start the whole, the whole snowball, get it rolling by writing my my story essentially. So this is a good. Uh, the question comes at a good time, I suppose. Are you going to be offering like your own sort of flashcards or flashcard deck directly through your site? Right now, probably just what's already existing. Uh, One of my motivations for making this site is just to centralize everything and also give myself a platform to answer a lot of the questions that come my way. I get so many questions about, you know, how to incorporate flashcards properly or just, you know, people wanting to know my advice and and what what my thoughts are on a lot of topics. So that's the main goal right now. As for future content, trying to get my feet wet in everything and and we'll see where the road leads. 
Awesome. All right. So on that subject, briefly, um, flashcards, should they incorporate flashcards? If so, how? What's your advice in this crunch time before step one? I guess one of the things that really drew me to flashcards was just how flexible they are. You know, and this is part of what I'm going to write about. A lot of students that have used my work have come back to me and said, you know, I relied on your stuff pretty heavily. Like it was my main source of, you know, exposure to the content. And then there's, you know, things on the other side of the spectrum where people say, I only used it to reinforce, you know, certain weaknesses. I only used it sparingly. People say they used it every day. So I think, you know, in terms of when is a good time to get flashcards into your toolkit, I think it's anytime you feel ready. The flexibility is there to use it, you know, just as I just, just explained, to use it really heavily or to use it as a way to just supplement and round out weaknesses as a more of a peripheral tool. Uh, if people are looking to adopt flashcards going into step one studying, I think that's a great, great thing to consider. In terms of the nitty gritty, yes. that Patrick could very well be uh, a podcast episode on its own. Right. And maybe we should do that sometime. We should. It's a great idea. Um, again, another thing I want to write about. I actually recently teamed up with uh, Shiv, Rishi, and the other wonderful team members at Osmosis, and we, we put together a webinar in early January exactly on what you're talking about, on how to write good flashcards. So I would certainly direct people to that. As a good starting point, uh, we talk a lot about the literature and sort of the learning science that supports flashcard use, and we go through some tips on just how to really employ it into your workflow and how to start writing cards on your own. How did you start? Um, why did you choose Anki, and what got you going in terms of uh, writing flashcards? The way I sort of got into that, and in, I guess into the whole Brosencephalon thing, was just I wanted to become a better student. I was sitting there, I guess, end of first year or near the end of first year, and I just wanted to make a change. Everyone always says, oh, you know, second year is the darkest year of med school, right? Everyone warns us that the volume of material is going to go up, that the time you have to spend with the material has to go up. So I just wanted to become more efficient to, to prepare for that, to give myself more time to spend with the material, but also just to take care of myself better, more time to lift, more time to watch movies and keep up with my hobbies, whatever it was. So the way I got into flashcards was essentially through the internet, the, the subreddit on, on Reddit, the medical school community over there. Yeah. You know, Anki wasn't too big at that time, but flashcards was an idea that got thrown around a lot, especially because, you know, there's all the cue banks that uh, people are using to sort of test themselves. So people were sort of flirting with the idea of flashcards. I decided to try it on my own too, you know, and at that point it was enticing to me because I sort of wanted to space myself from what I felt was weighing me down in first year. Yeah. I was taking a lot of handwritten notes, which was effective, you know, and I was doing really well and it kept me afloat in undergrad. But um, sort of how I was just saying, I just wanted to become more efficient and there was certainly more, there was certainly room for improvement as well. So I saw flashcards as a way to space myself from that mechanical aspect of studying. Um, the added benefits was also, you know, it was cross-platform. I could use it on my phone. I could use them on my laptop. I could also use them anywhere and at any time. If I'm in line at Starbucks or at the Tim Hortons or whatever it is, I could pull out my flashcards and, and just make use of the time. So that was very enticing to me because just, you know, being efficient was the name of the game. And I, f I felt like I could become a considerably better student if I just focused on becoming more efficient. Absolutely. And how did you come up with the uh, the name Brosencephalon? 
<laughs> so another popular question. So everyone knows what the prosencephalon is. Right. Or at least vaguely remembers. <laughs> For sure. I don't know where or how I got this idea, but I decided to make one of those bro word plays with prosencephalon. Yeah. Sort of how the way people say, you know, it's all good, brosif Stalin or whatever, just to make a play on the word bro. A meted portmanteau. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that was just my Reddit username. But then as things unfolded down the line, the name stuck and it sort of became the name that people use for, for my work. Well, that's awesome. I, I think it's, uh, it's definitely an honor to have you here. I thought for sure when I found out you had matched that it would have been into something like neuro. But that's not actually true, is it? <laughs> no, no. I'm, uh, I matched into internal medicine. Uh, I'm very excited for that. But yeah, actually, you're not the first one to say that. A number of people have just sort of thought because of the name Rosencephalon that I'm really huge onto neuro and I was headed in that direction. I love neuro, but I'm very happy that I ended up in IM for sure. All right. So the other thing I bet you get a lot is how do people get your content? What's the best way to get a hold of the bros deck? Mm -hmm. So that's probably, like I said, one of the biggest motivators for me to make my website. Yeah. So right now, a lot of my work is scattered around the Internet, mostly on Reddit. And uh, a big part of that is because after I had released, I guess what I can call now the first version of my flashcards, the community sort of just took it on to themselves to keep it updated, to change any errors that were in there, to delete any duplicates, to improve the tagging system in the cards. So it sort of just evolved on its own. And I, I really had no hand in this. Uh, people took it upon themselves to sort of dive into the flashcards and just make it more organized and, and trim the fat a little bit. So I guess updated versions of uh, what was originally released can be found on Reddit mostly if you give a search for it. But my end goal with the website is to have all of that centralized on rosencephalon.com just because so many students are really having to dig for access yeah. to, to these cards. And, you know, perhaps I'm a little late in setting all this up, but I You're think going guy. forward, <laughs> uh, I think going forward, that'll, that'll solve a lot of, a lot of obstacles for students who are just sort of picking up med school and picking up new study techniques. Now, osmosis used or employed some of your content, correct? Mm -hmm. So some of the flashcards, there's a, there's a bros pack. How does that work? I guess, what's the good word here? I guess in conjunction with uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, when Osmosis was sort of developing their open resource, their open question bank and whatnot, they had approached me, you know, through through the uh, RWJF to sort of contribute as a content contributor towards the resource that they were putting together. And I thought that was a great opportunity for me. And so I essentially just sent them the collection of, of uh, flashcards. There's about 16,000 of them that I put together and release. And they've sort of taken that and not only used it as a framework, but just sort of thrown it into their database. Um, and, you know, it feels good to be part of a project like that. Yeah, absolutely. So people should also check out Osmosis Prime. Um, you can get the mysterious Brosencephalon flashcards <laughs> integrated within their own um, flashcard database. So 
Yeah, they do some great stuff. All right, let's get into some learning. Uh, you are going into internal medicine, so we are going to discuss a little bit about cardiology today, everybody's favorite subject. Well, maybe not everyone's, <laughs> but um, it was one of mine. So let's do some questions. Um, this will be a, a shared internal medicine OBGYN uh, question to start. So a 33-year-old G2P1 comes to the office because of poor diabetic control. She is currently at 18 weeks gestation and admits to having poor control of her type 1 diabetes. Family history is non-contributor and examination shows a gravid abdomen with a um, fundal height of 19 centimeters. An abdominal ultrasound is ordered. Which of the following is the most likely congenital abnormality shown on the ultrasound? A. Amelia. B. Anencephaly. C. Sacral agenesis, D, spina bifida, or E, ventriculoseptal defect? And the answer here, well, do you want me to give the answer? Because some, some participants want to like think through them out loud. Sure, we can go through this question, actually. All right. So, so you guys think about that. Which is the following is the most uh, likely abnormality on ultrasound? And we'll get to the answer. Walk us through it. Right. So uh, I guess this is a good good time to, I guess, just mention one of the strategies that I feel really helped me with these board style questions, uh, I guess, before we dive into the other ones. Yeah. And it's a really simple thing that, that a resident I was rotating with sort of opened my eyes to. And it was just to always read the, the first sentence of the question of the vignette and then read the question line of the vignette before you dive into the actual details. You know, so I find that that, you know, it saves me time while reading the vignette. I can point out red herrings a lot more easily. And it, it also puts emphasis on keywords like most likely or least likely or best next step or the best first step, which a lot of the times makes or breaks, you know, a question whether or not you struggle with it. So I think here, knowing most likely congenital abnormality is really important because a lot of these certainly are common and are associated with the issue in this pregnancy, which is uncontrolled or poorly controlled type 1 diabetes. So just saying that and keeping in mind most likely, and then as well from your knowledge base, from the flashcards or whatever you're using to access the content, knowing the association with diabetes and congenital heart defects is essentially the missing link here and will will point you towards ventricular septal defect. That's the correct answer. So yeah. I, I think this this is sort of like an interesting question and, and raises a, a few issues. And I think I've pointed this out before on our, our podcast, but every board style question is going to have a vignette attached to it. And you need to read the vignette in order to answer the question. So they can't ask you or they won't ask you direct things like, which of the following is the most common congenital abnormality? in fetuses of moms who have poorly controlled diabetes. Like that will never occur. That's why you have a bunch of text followed by an actual interrogatory. But this is one way particularly to test sort of epidemiologic information. Mm -hmm. And so which of the following is the most likely abnormality? In order to know that, you need to know what is overall most common and what is also in particular associated with diabetes itself. If you Precisely. only know the latter, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to you're going to know something important about 
you know, this this particular topic, but you're going to get the actual question wrong. So VSD should be remembered is not only the most common cardiac anomaly associated with poorly controlled diabetes in pregnancy, it's also the most common overall congenital uh, heart defect. Right. So there's that. And then I don't want to take over here, but how else, um, what other important points would you offer here? The only other things I really wanted to say was stemming from exactly what you just uh, alluded to. And that would be the distractors in the options here. You know, anencephaly and spina bifida are both, you know, associated and can be complications of pregestational diabetes that's poorly controlled. But like you said, it's not the most common. So having both of those pieces of information is, is the key to answering questions like this. Yeah. And then just quickly, the amelia, um, which was answer choice A, refers to the absence of limbs. That is not associated with pregestational diabetes, but you have to remember, is associated with a famous drug, thalidomide. And it's not to be confused with sacral agenesis, which is sort of like pathognomonic for a type 1 diabetes uh, diagnosis. If you see it on, you know, like a 10 to 12 week ultrasound, sacral agenesis, the likelihood that mom has poorly controlled diabetes is is pretty solid. And mm -hmm. sacral agenesis is just um, abnormal development of the uh, lower extremity, lower spine. So, and then spina bifida and encephaly are common uh, neural tube defects, which, as you mentioned, can be associated with uh, diabetes, but aren't the most common. So, some pretty good high-yield points there. So For sure. Let's move on. A 15-year-old girl comes to the office because of a few incidents of hyperventilation, especially when she's stressed. She denies any chest pain or palpitations and no cardiac history, though her mother does report she has a murmur. Examination shows a late systolic murmur heard loudest at the apical region, which is preceded by a click. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the patient's murmur? And the answer choices are A, aortic stenosis, B, atrial septal defect, C, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, D, mitral valve prolapse, and E, tricuspid regurgitation. All right. How would you approach this if you're unfortunately having to take your step one exam again? Oh, God, that's a, that's a nightmare. It's a nightmare, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you guys will do fine. You guys will do fine. Don't worry. <laughs> right. So, again, just like with any other question, I always read the first line first and then the question line afterwards. And the one that really stuck out for me, I guess, right away from this, I guess this is kind of cheating because I also have a lot of clinical knowledge under my belt. But, you know, a 15 year old girl and the question is asking about a murmur. So obviously things like aortic stenosis are going to be less likely in my mind just because that doesn't really affect 15 year old girls right. too much. Yep. The rest is, you know, looking at the answer options and then going through the vignette. There's a pretty classical description of the murmur here. And I think questions are like these, or like this rather, typically boil down to whether or not you know the associations between disease presentation and the disease or not, which is the bread and butter of a lot of board questions anyway. Yeah. So here the murmur is described as a late systolic murmur, loudest at the apical region, preceded by a click, and is also questionable family history of a murmur as well. Immediately in my mind, just again from recognition and recall from the material is uh, mitral valve prolapse. 
Yeah. It just fits the murmur's description to a T. And the murmur description itself helps to eliminate a lot of the other answer choices, you know, such as, you know, the atrioceptal defect and, and the tricuspid regurge, for example. Yeah. So if you do actually get an interrogatory similar to what, what murmur is this, essentially? Right. Exactly. You, you either, you have two options to learn that material. You can memorize all the, features of the common murmurs that that are testable and testworthy with a mid-systolic click being a really specific sign of a mitral valve prolapse. Or you can study and understand the physiology as to what causes the sounds that correspond with um, the pathology, which is probably a, a better option. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> so, you know, people will, well, what what causes the the click and and that is because the mitral valve leaflets kind of like stick together right yeah they stick together or they they stick together which results in in backflow of blood through the the mitral valve leading to the late systolic location of the murmur and the clicking sound of the billowing mitral valve leaflets during cardiac auscultation so the i think it's really important to in my mind because this is such an important part of physical exam that illustrates a lot of um, physiologic principles, to really understand the pathophysiology of murmurs so that you don't have to, you know, think, oh man, is that, is that uh, harsh uh, systolic murmur over the uh, right second intercostal space? Is that this murmur, or is it actually aortic stenosis, which it is, mm -hmm. and it radiates to the neck? Why does it do that? I don't know. Do you have any good resources for that? Did you use flashcards to memorize this stuff, or was this a sit down for a an afternoon and really go through everything you could to understand cardiac uh, pathophysiology, specifically for murmurs? So I guess I was uh, a little bit ahead of the game here because I was a physiology student in undergrad. Okay. So a lot of the a lot of the concepts weren't the first time I was seeing them, but to answer your question, I did both actually. I wrote flashcards for all of this stuff. Yeah. But I also, you know, relied heavily on other sources too, especially for conceptual knowledge. Prose text is always my number one. I always find that I've learned best from reading like narrative texts, you know, straight out of a Robbins textbook or yeah. or a physiology text, whatever it is. But the flashcards certainly helped because, um, you know, there are a lot of patterns in medicine. There's a lot of uh, a lot of situations where you need to recognize those patterns quickly. And flashcards really help with that. And a lot of the research into flashcards and, and namely active recall has shown that there is a lot of benefit in using this kind of these kind of tools for conceptual learning and not just enumerated knowledge as well. So, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad I did that. But I did both to answer your question. Okay, fair enough. So just uh, to lay this out clearly then, mitral valve prolapse is a late systolic murmur heard loudest at the apical region with a mid-systolic click. That's your mitral valve prolapse. And then answer choice A was aortic stenosis. So you're looking for a harsh systolic murmur heard loudest over the right second intercostal space, which radiates to the neck. B was an atrial septal defect with um, kind of the classic finding or unique finding for ASD being the fixed splitting of S2. Hypertrophic cardio 
myopathy is similar to aortic stenosis, but is a crescendo-decrescendo systolic murmur, best heard at the left upper sternal border. Those are the kind of things you would see in a physical examination description of someone with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who would present with possibly syncope, ischemic chest pain, um, and or arrhythmia. And then tricuspid regurgitation, which was choice E, is also a systolic murmur, which is typically described as having a mid-diastolic rumble, and you'll likely see distended jugular veins from increased right atrial pressure and um, backup of uh, blood in terms of venous return. So... Mm-hmm. Any other high yield murmur points before we go on? To- this is a good, uh, good mirror of the first question too, and sort of how to approach the question. I think. All right, moving on to a forty-three-year-old woman who comes to the office because of palpitations for the past month. She says the palpitations are intermittent and are not caused by anything in particular. Medical history is significant for a cardiac murmur since childhood. And examination shows a soft diastolic murmur heard loudest at the left fifth intercostal space. Which of the following most likely represents the etiology of this patient's murmur? Is it A, aortic annulus dilation, B, atrial septal defect, C, a patent ductus arteriosus, D, a pulmonary valve stenosis, or E, repeated bouts of acute rheumatic fever. And the answer here is E, repeated bouts of acute rheumatic fever. What leads us to that answer and helps us rule out the other choices? I like this question because, you know, I didn't have too much difficulty with it now, but I can almost guarantee you that back in step one prep, I would have had issues with this question. Absolutely. Um <laughs> So I think uh, what really, really helps us here, and I think if students you know, find themselves sitting in front of a question like this, uh, is to kind of play the process of elimination game. Because a lot of the times on, on the test, you might find that you, know, you have the knowledge, you have the knowledge to understand why an answer choice would be right or wrong. But getting to that, that, that uh, answer choice is more difficult than actually piecing together the concepts. So I think this is a good good uh, example of a question where you could use that uh, approach. So if we just go through the options, two of the options already have systolic murmurs. So yeah. they're automatically ruled out. And uh, the ones I'm talking about here are the, the pulmonary valve stenosis as well as the, the ASD. They both have systolic murmurs. I think you mentioned PDA as an option as well. And that has a very distinct murmur sound, the machine-like murmur, um, which I think is accentuated or louder in systole. Yes. But um, regardless, those three are automatically ruled out just because of how the murmur is being described here. And if we take a closer look at the options, we have two diastolic murmurs, but the one in the question is loudest at the left fifth intercostal space, which is going to point me towards a mitral lesion as opposed to an aortic lesion and the the obvious answer choice to that point is the repeated bouts of acute rheumatic fever. Yeah. So you can't underestimate how important it is to remember the all physicians take money uh, mnemonic for physical exam. Huge mnemonic. Yeah, that that's like that's got to be one of the top 10 <laughs> things yeah, that's that up it's, there. It's up there. That's uh, worth remembering. But I mean, you can sometimes 
sometimes a question is going to be a lot harder than just identifying which valve based on where the vignette identifies the auscultation is happening. But sometimes it's it really is that easy. So if you feel stuck, I would say come up with a process for approaching murmur type questions. My own mind, I think probably proceeds kind of along the same pattern that, that you did here. And, and, and that is, okay, where are they listening in the vignette? And it's at the left fifth intercostal space. So that immediately has me thinking mitral, right? Mitral. Mm-hmm. And then is it heard systolic or diastolic? Well, if it's a mitral or tricuspid stenosis, then it's going to be a diastolic murmur. If it's a mitral or tricuspid regurgitation, it's going to be a systolic murmur. And kind of the obverse is true for the aortic and pulmonary valves. So um, I guess that's how I would kind of break it down is location of auscultation to identify identify the the valve that's that's abnormal and then the timing of the murmur systolic or diastolic to help determine whether it's a stenotic or a regurgitative process and i think even if you can only remember that stuff that'll probably help you get through like 80% of murmur type questions mm-hmm. That leaves out, of course, um, or can leave out, at least from the names of the disease processes, and you just have to memorize them if you didn't feel like doing the the hard work of understanding the physiology, like the atrial septal defect, which is the systolic ejection murmur. But the problem with that is it's it's really a a pulmonic uh, valvular uh, lesion, and then PDA is going to be a continuous machine-like murmur, like you said. That's a pretty classic description, but it is kind of a buzzword. So I don't know that you can rely on the machine-like phraseology Mm -hmm. nowadays. So you'd be looking for emphasis on the um, continuous nature of the auscultatory finding and the accentuation in systole would also help. Let's see what else. I think that's... The patient will probably also be younger than... Fi- than 15. 43. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. She's 43 in this one. Yeah. <laughs> that, and and that brings up a good point, too. Um, you know, like it, in trying to explain this, here I am like focusing in on just the physical examination findings. But if I were actually stuck as a student and I didn't start thinking about very basic things like the fact that they really aren't trying to trick you. Right. You know, like if a patient's 45 years old or something, they're probably not going to be having a patent ductus arteriosus. That is, that's that's pretty good info to keep in mind because it helps you immediately rule out one of the answer choices if you're stuck. But acute rheumatic fever, soft uh, mid-diastolic rumbling, uh, heard loudest at the apex of the heart or the left fifth intercostal space. That's mitral stenosis. And I think uh, Elizabeth is actually doing a group A strep mini episode to go over a little more related to rheumatic fever. So we'll leave it at that. All right, let's cool. let's do one more. All right, sounds good. So we're going to look at a 72-year-old woman who comes to the emergency department because of a brief loss of consciousness, slurred speech, and facial numbness. Family members report that she complained about feeling chest pain and shortness of breath while on her morning walk. Medical history is non-contributory. 
physical examination shows decreased pupil reactivity to light and a hemiplegic gait. On auscultation, her S1 is loud and widely split, and there is a diastolic murmur. Her temperature is normal, pulse is 120 beats per minute, respirations are 26 per minute, blood pressure is 160 over 80. And a transthoracic echocardiograph reveals a large oval-shaped and sessile mass in the left atrium. Which of the following is the most likely complication of this patient's condition? And the answer choices here are A, atrial fibrillation, B, atrioventricular block, C, congestive heart failure, D, mitral valve obstruction, or E, pulmonary edema. When I looked at these questions, this question in particular, and pulled pulled it, I knew this one. I was I was pretty excited because I, <laughs> I, I don't really deal with this too often. But let me ask you, how would you approach it before we give away the answer? Again, just sticking to my strategy, reading the question, it's clear to me that it's a like secondary tertiary type question. Yeah. So the first thing uh, is to identify, you know, what what this patient has. The big giveaway is, of course, the, the, the echo finding, the large oval-shaped and sessile left atrium, left atrial mass. So that obviously brings uh, the cardiac tumor, a myxoma, possibly into my mind. And that's where I went. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think they, they make that pretty clear um, with how they describe the, the echo findings. So once you settle on the myxoma, the other thing is to figure out what the most likely complication is and then again i think it sounds like such a simple thing and like it sounds so obvious but just reading the question first helped me so much um and it just helps words like most likely complication just stick out to me as i read the vignette from yeah. top to bottom yeah so the next thing is just to decide which of these answer options um you know is the most likely complication atrial fibrillation is possible but it's not the most likely chf is possible but it's not the most likely and again like how you were saying just now they're not really trying to trick you sometimes keeping it simple is 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 the best way to go um and so mitral valve obstruction option d would be the correct answer that sticks out to me but it's important once again just to have the most likely in mind because some of these other answer choices are certainly possible as well yeah, and I think the hinge for this particular question is is that, like you said, the echocardiograph finding that large oval-shaped and sessile left atrial mass. So if you have that, what is that going to look like clinically? Well, the left atrium, you know, leads into the left ventricle via the mitral valve. So if I have a mass in my left atrium, could I get AFib? Yes, that's possible, like you said, and you can get all these kind of other things too. But the tumor is most likely to just simply obstruct the mitral valve and lead to her symptoms. So AFib, we expect perhaps more in terms of her clinical picture, you know, that they would at least say in uh, the physical examination or oscill that she's got an irregularly irregular rhythm, for instance. Mm -hmm. AV block. I don't know that you can really get that without having some ECG report, you know. And, and not just that, she's also tachycardic. So 
Oh, um, yeah, that's you know, AV block is just less likely as well. And then CHF, I think, again, you're going to have more in terms of her clinical picture that are, they're probably going to mention, you know, edema, not just shortness of breath uh, or chest pain or morning walk, but she's got these other things, too, that don't quite simply fit with CHF. Uh, mm-hmm. Loss of consciousness, slurred speech, facial numbness, hemiplegic gait, decreased pupil reactivity to light. So, and then I guess going back to that, what are they trying to describe with the loss of consciousness, slurred speech, essentially the neuro findings? Um, what are they trying to get us to think of? I think they're trying to nudge the students towards AFib. So, do you think it's simply a distractor there? That's what I took it as. You know, she's a 72-year-old lady. She possibly has other comorbidities. You know, the lesion that's described, we don't know how long it's been there. It is possible that she has AFib, right? But right. that's not that's not what's being asked here. So um, I, guess, I guess maybe this is a good opportunity to maybe expand a little bit on how I approach questions. You know, and maybe, and maybe it's a double-edged sword, um, and it probably is. But, you know, by reading this, the sort of the question first and the top, and I kind of was nudged towards focusing more on the the physical exam findings, her vitals, and the echo finding as opposed to her her history. The way the question is written, it could be the opposite way for other questions as well. So, and I guess too, as the question nudges them towards AFib, there's probably a few different approaches to this. I personally try to answer the question, the interrogatory, prior to looking at the answer choices. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're, you're rushed during a standardized exam. And I could very simply or easily see somebody reading this and going, oh, this lady had probably like an embolic stroke. Um, mm-hmm. And there's these weird cardiac findings um, on auscultation. So, yeah, she's probably got AFib. And then because that's the first answer choice, I would pencil it in or click on it and then move on. So it's important to really make sure you have all the information here and in terms of you know the the myxoma what is the single best answer here obstruction it's obstruction even though some of these other things could occur that's not the the most likely complication here it's it's obstruction because there's a mass in the heart heart's left atrium Anything else on this one? No, I I think that was good. I hope I made sense. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I made sense too, but uh, thank you so much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. That's Amrit Sidhu, the Brosencephalon. Thank you very much for having me. Stay tuned to brosencephalon.com for more from Amrit and good luck. Thank you. Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. Just share an episode, tag at Boards Insider on Twitter or Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll be entered to win the Study Smarter contest, which is going to be a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of the series. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check 2 O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at 2oClockCourage.com or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, 
National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.